And this is the record that God has given to us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on Him is not condemned. But he who believeth not is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to His mercy, He saved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, correctly understanding the word of truth. Let's open the word of truth this morning to John chapter 9. John chapter 9. We'll continue our study of the Gospel of John. But before we get started, we need to open in prayer, make sure that we are indeed ready to study God's word this morning. We need to be in fellowship with the Lord. Remember the psalmist said that if, that if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. So we need to make sure that we are indeed cleansed from sin. And the only way to do that is 1 John 1.9. If we confess, that means to admit or to acknowledge our sins to God the Father. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So this is a simple procedure of silent prayer, whereby in the privacy of our priesthood, we can, if necessary, deal with any unconfessed sin in our lives so that we can recover the filling of the Holy Spirit, be restored to fellowship, and be prepared for the study of God's Word. Let's, therefore, begin with a few moments of prayer, a moment of silent prayer preceding. Let's pray. Father, the psalmist said, Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. It is your word that is the light in which we see all other light. It illuminates every area of our thinking. Every category of thought begins with the truth of your word, for that is the presupposition from which we face every issue in life. Now, Father, as we study your word, we pray that God the Holy Spirit would make these things clear to us that we can see how these things apply to our lives, that we may be challenged by them and advance in spiritual maturity. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now we continue with our study of the Gospel of John, and we are in the central section of the Gospel, beginning in 5.1 through the end of chapter 12, which records a series of confrontations between Jesus and the religious leaders. We have to remember that the entire context of John is almost like a legal courtroom scene. Over and again, there's terminology such as witnesses, testimony, evidences that are used by the writer in order to present his case. And what is that case? John 20:31. These are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you might have life in His name. This Gospel more than any other book in the Scriptures, was written so that it could stand alone 
and give people everything, all the information they need in order to have an eternal relationship with God. The, John, the Gospel writer John, the Apostle John, makes it clear that there is one and only one condition for salvation, and that is belief. It is not believing and reforming your life. It is not believing and joining a church. It is not believing and engaging in certain ritual. It is not believing and keeping yourself uh, pure unto God as a believer for the rest of your life. It is simply believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. He argues his case by showing that Jesus was indeed who he claimed to be. That is, the promised Messiah from the Old Testament. And that there is more than enough evidence to substantiate the point that Jesus was the Messiah. The Old Testament term, the Hebrew term Mashiach, which we transliterate into English as Messiah, means the anointed one, God's anointed or promised one from the Old Testament, the one whom God appointed to be the Savior of all mankind, is Jesus Christ. His name was Jesus, Yeshua, Jesus of Nazareth. His last name was not Christ. Christ is the Greek from the Greek word Christos, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Mashiach. So when John says, these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, he is saying to a Jewish audience, these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Old Testament promised Messiah. And as Jesus comes, he is going to give evidence in his life and in his works through his deeds and through the things that he teaches that he is indeed the promised one of old and that he is the one who will go to the cross and die as a substitute for our sins. Because he has presented himself as God time and time again, he has had a head-on confrontation with the religious leaders of his day. They have continuously rejected his claim. And we saw that all the way back into chapter 5, which chronologically took place about the second year of Jesus' public ministry, all the way back into John chapter 5, when Jesus made a trip for a religious feast, he doesn't tell us which one in that chapter, Jesus went to Jerusalem for the celebration of a feast, and while he was there, he healed a crippled man at the pool of Bethesda on a Sabbath. It was a phenomenal scene. We studied that a long time ago, it seems now, probably six or seven months ago. Jesus came into the pool. The disciples were not with him. There were hundreds of people surrounding the pool at Bethesda, which had the uh, legend that if the waters were stirred and you got there first, then the angel who stirred the waters would heal you. And there was this uh, just unfortunate man, just an example, a terrible example of someone who, had, who was crippled and who was left alone and he could never even, just a pathetic example, he couldn't even get up off of his mat or drag himself to the pool before 30 or 40 other people had already gotten there ahead of him. So for years, he had been lying by the side of the pool waiting for some miracle. And Jesus walks up to him and he leans over very quietly. It's not a flashy, showy miracle. He's not, uh, he's not calling attention to himself in the crowd. And he ignores probably hundreds of people there who are, uh, we would think, just as deserving or more deserving of, of being healed. And he just walks to this one man, leans over, asks leans over, ask in his ear, you want to be healed? And the man looks up and he says, get up, take up your pallet and walk. And he did it on a Sabbath. 
It was in violation of the uh, rabbinical ordinances, the Pharisaical ordinances. Not the. It was not a violation of the Old Testament law, but it was a violation of how they interpreted it. And so it immediately put him in conflict with the Pharisaical traditions. And it was at that point that they determined that they were going to put him to death. And everything from that point on merely is a development of this controversy and antagonism between Jesus and the Pharisees. In John chapter 7, we saw the events related to his appearance in Jerusalem at the Feast of Booths and the increasing interchange and antagonism between Jesus and the Pharisees. Then in chapter 8, we saw events that took place the day after the end of the week-long Feast of Booths and Tabernacles, which culminated in Jesus saying some very harsh things to the Pharisees. He called them children of the devil, that they did not know God, they did not worship God, and if they did, they would know who He was. That they were of their father the devil, who was a liar and the father of lies, and in essence He's calling them all liars, and that they do not know the truth whatsoever. And then finally it culminated in His uh, statement at the end of the chapter that He was in existence before Abraham. And He says, before Abraham was born, before Abraham came into existence, I am. I continually existed. And we saw at the conclusion of the last uh, hour, a week ago, that that was a reference to deity. The term egoimi in the Greek was a transliteration. Looks like this in the Greek. E-G-O-E-I-M-I. E-G-O, ego, is the first person singular pronoun, I. A me is the Greek word which means to be. It is translated, I am. In the Old Testament, when God appeared to Moses, He gave His personal name as Yahweh in the Hebrew, Y-H-W-H, which means I am that I am. So when Jesus claimed before Abraham was born, I am, He was making a claim to deity. He was claiming to be equal with God. This was not something new. He had claimed to be God continuously from chapter 5 on. He claimed to do the deeds of God. He claimed to perform the works of God. He claimed to speak nothing but that which the Father had given Him. And the reason the Pharisees rejected Him is because they did not uh, really know the Father or the Father's will. Back in the first part of chapter 8, in verse down in verse um, 12, Jesus made the statement, I am the light of the world. He who follows Me shall not walk in darkness, but have, shall have the light of life. Now when Jesus says that, when John reminds us, the way John constructs His Gospel is fascinating because of the way He weaves various themes together to illustrate the claims of Jesus. And He is making, He has Jesus make this statement, Jesus made the statement, and then He chooses the, the examples of what happened afterwards in order to heighten our awareness in the contrast between those who believed in Jesus who were now in the light and had their thinking illuminated by the truth Light in Scripture is always related to revelation and to truth. Jesus says, If we abide in My Word, then you are disciples of Mine and you will know the truth, 
and the truth will make you free. Why? Because they are in the light. Those who follow Him shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. In contrast, we see the Pharisaical rejection of Him and that they are in darkness. And that the issue underlying all of this is their negative volition, their rejection of the revelation that they do have. And now we come to the fact, or to chapter 9, he leaves the temple, and as he is going out of the temple and going down the stairs, he encounters this man who is congenitally blind. He is blind from birth. But before we get into that, we need to note a couple of contrasts between chapter 8 and chapter 9. In chapter 8, Jesus is in the temple where He is reacted to. The religious leaders are in reaction to Him because religion is always in reaction to grace. Just because people are religious, just because they use a lot of God talk, just because they walk around holding a Bible and looking sanctimonious, does not mean they want to know God, does not mean they really know God, does not mean they have a relationship with God. Jesus is reacted to in the temple. In chapter 9, He is outside the temple where He has a greater ministry and a greater response. In chapter 8, He is inside the temple where He claims to be the light of the world. In chapter 9, He is outside the temple where He is the communicator of light to the world. In chapter 8, He is inside the temple and He is rejected by the religious leaders. In chapter 9, He is outside the temple where He is received and worshipped. In chapter 8, Jesus refutes the religious crowd. In chapter 9, this unsaved man who is blind from birth and is given sight refutes the religious crowd. The religious crowd is always antagonistic to grace because they are arrogantly committed to their own righteousness. This is the essence of religion, that people think there is something about them that will gain God's approval. That somehow through their prayer life, somehow through their religious activity, through daily devotional reading, not that these things are wrong in themselves, but people think that because they go to church, because they're involved in religious programs and religious activities, because they donate to the church, all of these things, that that impresses God. And Scripture says that all of our righteousnesses are as filthy rags in the sight of God, that there is nothing that we can do to gain God's approval. So there is always an antagonistic reaction against grace from the religious crowd. In chapter 8, it began with the episode of the woman taken in adultery. There Jesus leaned over and He wrote in the dirt. In chapter 9, we have the blind man and Jesus leans over and spits in the dirt and He mixes it with the, with the dirt to make a soft clay to put on the man's eyes and then He heals him. So these are just some of the comparisons and contrasts between chapter 8 and chapter 9. Chapter 9 has 38 verses. In the first 12 verses, we see the miracle of giving sight to the blind man. In verses 13 through 34, we have the blind man and the Pharisees. And in verses 35 to 38, the blind man and the Lord. It is not until the end of the chapter that this man accepts Jesus as his Savior. So up until verse 35, he is, or really until about 37 or 38, he is not 
a believer. Now, the principle of this whole chapter is that religion, the religious activity of the Pharisees, leads to greater blindness. They are in spiritual darkness and they are spiritually blind. We see the contrast between the the man who is physically blind and the Pharisees who are spiritually blind. We see the, the arrogance that underlies religiosity. In this chapter, we have the religious Pharisees, and in spite of all the evidence in front of them, they continue to deny it. We see how destructive religion can be. And we need to take note of that in our nation because there's a lot of people who are out there marching for Christianity, and it's not Christianity at all, it's just religion. People are on the crusader trail, operating on crusader arrogance, trying to reform the nation politically, and the only solution that can ever turn a nation around is the spiritual solution, not the religious solution. Religion never helped. In fact, religion is destructive to a nation. It is religion. It is the arrogance of the religion of the Pharisees that caused them to reject Jesus as Messiah. They were moral. In fact, they were the moral majority. They were the religious crowd of the day. And yet, because they rejected grace and they rejected the Messiah, the result was that God took the nation of Israel out under divine discipline in 70 A.D. when the troops of Rome marched in and destroyed the temple and destroyed Jerusalem. So religion is not a solution or a positive solution. Religion can be as destructive to a nation as anything. Only Christianity, which emphasizes a change from the inside out, not the outside in. Too many Christians are running around trying to whitewash the devil's world. And this is the devil's world, and it will always be the devil's world. And Christian activism is not a solution to anything. In fact, Christian activism, just because it flows from arrogance, is only going to intensify the problem. It's never going to resolve the problem. Now let's look at what happens when Jesus comes out of the temple. Verse 9. We read, and as he passed by... He saw a man blind from birth. So Jesus is leaving the temple. The crowd has rejected him. The religious leaders in the temple have rejected him. And he walks out of the temple, which is filled with spiritually blind people, and walks out into a world that is filled with spiritually blind people, as exemplified in this one man who is physically blind. The Apostle John arranges this material to make a particular point. He's going to show how Jesus is the light of the world and how that works. So this is not simply a man who has become blind, but this is a man who is blind from birth. A man who is congenitally blind. So the theme that we continue to see through this chapter is the theme of light versus darkness. The darkness is the unbeliever. He is born in sin. Because he is born a sinner, he is depraved, total depravity, and he is spiritually blind. The issue that we saw that Jesus brought up back in the middle of chapter 8 is that man is spiritually a slave because of sin. He who commits sin 
is the slave of sin, and the person who is the slave of sin is in darkness. And the only solution is the light of God's Word. So now to make the issue clear, Jesus Christ is going to pick this man with this birth defect to illustrate that only God can solve man's problem. Only grace can solve the problem. It begins with the verb, the present active participle of parago, which is an adverb of time. Looks like this in the Greek, parago. And because it is lacks the definite article in the Greek, it is an adverbial, which means it's going to modify the main verb. It's an adverbial participle of time. So it says, while he is going. So we see the process. There's movement here. While he's walking down the steps, he suddenly looks over and sees the aorist active indicative of horao. He sees this man who is blind from birth. Now Jesus sees that this sees this man, but the man doesn't see Jesus. The man doesn't know what's going on. Jesus has his entourage of the twelve disciples around him, and suddenly he comes down the steps and he stops. The f- disciples sort of bounce up against him, want to know what's going on, and the disciples look down and they see this guy. Now when Jesus looks at him, Jesus is looking at him in terms of his soul. Jesus sees the man for who he is on the inside, but all the disciples can see is the man on the outside. And we learn from this that we need to look at, learn to look at people in terms of their soul, not in terms of their physical appearance. This man is congenitally blind. Now, I don't know if you've ever seen anyone who is congenitally blind, someone blind from birth, but it affects their whole, the makeup of their face. Everything is sort of out of kilter. They don't look normal. Their eyes are often askew. Um, sometimes they're buried deep in their head, but they do, they're not attractive at all. Furthermore, this man is a beggar. He is outside the temple begging for food. He's dressed in rags because he's blind. He can't work for a living. So he's, he's uh, uh, dressed poorly. His clothes probably haven't been washed in a while. He smells bad. He is generally offensive. He is not an attractive person. And he represents the way you and I look to God. We are obnoxious to God. We are offensive to God. All our righteousness is as filthy rags. We are completely repugnant to God. Yet, when Jesus looks at this man, he sees something they don't see. Jesus looks on the inside and he sees that this man is positive to God at God consciousness. Now, what do I mean by God consciousness? When we are born, we have a soul. We are born physically alive and spiritually dead. So that means that we are dichotomous. We have a human body. We have a human soul. This soul is made up of self-consciousness, mentality, Emotion, volition, and conscience. Now, at some point, as we begin to grow, we become self-conscious. We develop a self-identity. We get to a point where we can look in the mirror 
and we can recognize ourselves and we know who we're looking at. We become aware that there's a difference between us and everything that surrounds us. So first we become self-conscious. Then we become conscious of others, that there's a distinction between us and other people. We identify our parents, our mother, our father, sisters, brothers, the pet dog, the pet cat. We begin to distinguish ourselves from everything around us. And then eventually we become God-conscious. And that means we reach a point where we realize that there is all of this around us and we want to know where did it come from. At that point, our volition kicks in and we can either go positive or negative at God consciousness. We can either say, hmm, I wonder where all this came from. I really want to know where it all came from. Now, we don't necessarily have all the right terminology and verbiage. We're not theologians at the age of 2, 3, 15, 19, whatever it might be. It varies from culture to culture, environment to environment. But at some point, we make that decision, and that's the age of accountability. We're able to understand that God exists. We know that God exists. This is clear from Romans 1, 18-20, that there is enough evidence in the creation of God's existence that no one is ignorant of it. We are therefore accountable for this knowledge. So if we go negative, we're going to be accountable to, for the consequences. If we're positive... Because God is fair and God is righteous, God is going to get gospel information to that person at some point in their life. He will keep them alive long enough, no matter where they are, no matter what culture they're in, no matter if they're off in the Stone Age tribe in Irian Jaya, or if they're in, in the heart of Harlem, or if they're in Brooklyn, or even in Texas, somehow God's going to get the gospel to them. And when that comes, they have a second decision to make whether or not they're going to be positive at gospel hearing or reject the gospel. Just because somebody's positive at God consciousness does not mean they're going to be positive at gospel hearing. The thing that matters is whether or not they are positive at gospel hearing and put their faith alone in Christ alone. Now, this blind man has been positive at God consciousness and, and the Lord Jesus Christ sees that. Furthermore, in His deity, remember Jesus Christ is undiminished deity and true humanity united together in one person forever. The doctrine of the hypostatic union. Because in His uh, undiminished deity, Jesus Christ is eternal. And He knows that in the council of divine decrees, God set forth a plan for human history. And God in His omniscience knows all the knowable and that this particular blind person was going to be positive at God consciousness, and that uh, he would be outside the temple. And so part of God's plan was that Jesus Christ would utilize this individual in order to show his credentials that he was indeed the Messiah promised from the Old Testament. So this man is going to be used as an illustration of what takes place in salvation. He is in physical and spiritual darkness. This man needs the light of the world. Jesus has just announced in John 8:12 that he is the light of the world, and light is much more meaningful to a blind person who has never seen light than to someone who has seen all of his life. 
And what we see here is a contrast between the blind man who is born physically blind from birth, but has genuine humility from his positive volition, and he is contrasted to the, to the Pharisees, who have had all this light from their knowledge of God's Word, and yet because of their arrogance, they are in spiritual darkness. And spiritual darkness is much worse than physical darkness. Now, Jesus stops, looks at the blind man, and the disciples recognize that he's looking at him. And his disciples ask him a question. This is the aorist active indicative of the Greek verb haratao. This is a soft breathing mark. A-R-A-T-A-O. And it means to ask, to inquire, to be inquisitive, to seek information. It's different from the Greek word iteo, normally the word we'd find for ask, which is the word for for, uh, making a petition, asking a superior a question. They're just being inquisitive. They want some information here. And it's because they're confused about suffering and the whole doctrine of suffering. Now, think about this a minute, folks. This is the right after the feast of booths, which occurs in December, and it is going to be in March, the coming March, just three months away, that Jesus is going to be crucified. So that means Jesus has spent almost three years now with the twelve disciples. They still haven't figured out the doctrine of suffering. They're slow. They're not learning their doctrine very well. Of course, they don't have the filling of the Holy Spirit to help them. But they're not catching the point, And they're still caught up with the things that they have been taught from their traditional background in Pharisaism. In Judaism at this time, people were taught that if you suffered, if, someone, if a child was born with some sort of birth defect, lame, crippled, blind, deaf, It was because the parents had sinned. The parents were obviously arrogant. And God is going to give you this child in order to teach you some humility. So it's not the child's fault, it's the parents' fault. Furthermore, there was one group within Judaism at that time, and there's some evidence of this from the literature of the Essenes, as well as a couple of statements from Josephus. Josephus lived a little later than this, 10, 20 years later. He was uh, a young man at this time probably, very young, probably a teenager. And Josephus was a historian. He was a a Roman Jew, and he traveled with the armies of Titus at the end of the period during the invasion of Israel. And he uh, recorded a lot of information and wrote a number of things according to the history at this time. And according to the Essene literature, the Essenes were the uh, Jewish cult group they lived down in the Dead Sea area. According to these groups, there was this, a teaching of, of a pre-existence of the soul that the soul was not created by God and imparted at birth, but that the soul pre-existed. It's, uh, this idea of reincarnation has always managed to float around the Oriental world and been there for many years. The idea that, that you just go from one lifespan to the next, and that contradicts Scripture, Hebrews says that uh, it's uh, given a man to live once, and after this, 
the judgment. It's appointed unto men to live once, and after this, the judgment. You don't go through. You don't get recycled like um, plastic or aluminum. You just have one life to live, and that's it. But there was this idea that that you had uh, a pre-existent life, and if you did something bad, then when you were born, you would be born with some sort of congenital defect. So that's what they are asking. Rabbi, this is how you would address a teacher. Rabbi, who sinned? This man, i.e., is this a result of some pre-existent fault? Did he have bad karma? Something like that. You see, the the Pharisee, I mean, the, the, the disciples are asking their questions from the frame of reference of their religious Judaistic background. They really haven't understood what the Lord's been teaching them yet. Rabbi, who sinned? This man or his parents, that he should be born blind. Now, this reflects one of the perennial problems that people have, and that is, why is there evil in the world, and why is there suffering? And thinkers have come up with three basic solutions to why evil exists. First solution is evil is inherent. It is, therefore, normal. This is the position of many in modern society. This is the basic position underlying the whole theory of evolution. Evolution not only articulates the doctrine of survival of the fittest, which means that the mechanism, the mechanism for advancing from one species to another is through uh, natural selection and fighting and death and all of this. The fossils are all evidence of death. So death is normal according to evolution. And so, therefore, death and suffering are just natural and normal, and it's not bad or good. It's just the way things are. So the first position is that evil is inherent and normal. problem with that is if evil is normal, suffering is normal, just the way things are, then ultimately you really don't have a basis for distinguishing between good and evil because both are of an eternal existence. The second solution is to deny the existence of evil. It's not really there. It's just an illusion. It's just a mental illusion. You, you really, you're, you're really not hurting. Your, your hand that you just stuck in the fire really isn't burning. That's just, a, that's just an illusion. This was a solution that was offered by Christian science. Mary Baker, Glover, Patterson, Eddy up here in Boston, started the Christian science movement. And she got a lot of her thinking from something that was called New Thought Metaphysics. That was taught by a guy. This is just a little aside here to give you a little historical background. came from New Thought Metaphysics, and the big guru of New Thought Metaphysics was a guy by the name of Phineas Parkhurst Quimby. Okay, now you're going to remember that name, I know. Phineas Parkhurst Quimby. Now, Quimby had... Uh, not only had a major disciple in um, Mary Baker Eddy, but he also influenced another school up there called the Emerson School of Oratory. Now, this was all part of a major healing movement, non-Christian healing movement, that characterized the middle 19th century in America. And it was the idea that ultimate reality was what went on in your mind, not what went on outside your mind. And you could control and shape reality by what you thought. Now, just to show you where this has gone, 
Quimby not only influenced Mary Baker, Glover, Patterson, Eddie, but he also, through the Emerson School of Oratory, influenced a guy by the name of F.C. Kenyon. F.C. Kenyon. Kenyon, in turn, wrote a number of books. He did, Kenyon didn't like Christian science because he said, quote, it didn't have enough of the blood of Christ in it. So what he wanted to do was have more biblical terminology. So he takes New Thought metaphysics and dresses it up in the garb of biblical terminology much more than, than uh, Christian science did. Now then along came a, came a guy named Kenneth Hagen, Sr. Kenneth Hagen, Sr. and uh, Kenneth Copeland. Every now and then we get him on TV here, so I want to throw that name out there. And Oral Roberts and a number of other, quote, healing evangelists. They came to prominence back in the T.L. Osborne's, another one back in the... Uh, 40s and 50s, and they had these great healing revivals in the Pentecostal movement. And it's been demonstrated through a number of different scholarly works that Kenneth Hagin plagiarized Kenyon. He not only, and I'm not talking about a word here or a paragraph there, I have seen demonstrated in dissertations and in published books pages. He would, t- he would just lift five to ten pages at a time out of Kenyon and just put him in his book and put his name on it. So a lot of what's going on in Pentecostalism today and all these healing revivals and the healing you see on TV and what's called the Word of Faith movement influences people like Bob Tilton and some others. And I've noticed that Tilton's back on the air again. They, they get all of their teaching has its source. This is its line going all the way back to Phineas Quimby and it's nothing more than sort of a baptized version of Christian science mind cult and it all goes back to the idea that these things are suffering in the Christian life is really it's either not real or uh, I'm not going to believe it's real and I'm just going to claim by faith and reconstruct reality on the basis of my faith confession So that just shows you where that fits into the scheme of things. So you have the idea that either evil is inherent and normal, or you just deny its existence. In fact, I was reading something by, I forget who wrote this, whether it was Kenneth Hagin or or Kenneth Copeland, but they were talking about they had the flu and all the symptoms, runny nose, high fever, chills, and I wasn't going to let the devil put that on me. And so I just claimed my victory in Jesus and I just kept going and I wasn't going to let that uh, affect me anymore. And, you know, the idea here is that that he still had the symptoms and they just want to act like the symptoms have nothing to do with the disease and claim this victory. So it's, it's a lot of mental gymnastics that are divorced from reality. It's just a mental denial. I don't care how bad I hurt, how sick I am. Evil is not really there. But the sad thing is that when these guys get sick, when Frederick Casey Price's wife got cancer, she went in for radio, I mean for, for, for chemotherapy. When uh, uh, Dodie uh, Osteen down in Houston got sick with, uh, uh, I think she had ovarian cancer or breast cancer, she went in to... Uh, uh, 
the hospital there and went through all the uh, chemotherapy. That's what they do. They don't go to one another. You didn't find when John Osteen was sick last year, he went on, on dialysis. He didn't go to his good friend Oral Roberts in order to get healed. They just don't carry it out in practice. Of course, they never let the people in their congregations know that they're not practicing what they preach from the pulpit. The Scripture teaches that, okay, and the third solution, inherent and normal, second, deny it, and the third solution is that human viewpoint comes up with is evil is really good. This is the existentialist response that evil is really good. Um, We just think it's wrong. We just assign that to it. So human viewpoint can't handle the problem of suffering. And the Bible says that suffering and all evil is the result of the introduction of sin into the universe. So we answer the, have to ask the question, why do we suffer? Well, first of all, when God created Adam and Eve, He created a perfect environment. There was no suffering. There was no sorrow. There was nothing negative in the environment. But the instant Adam sinned, so point number one, why we suffer, is because Adam sinned, the entire created world on planet Earth fell under the curse of sin. And that introduces the basis for all sickness, suffering, and misery. The same application goes to birth defects and congenital problems. Because everything has been affected by sin and there is deterioration in the cell structure down through from one generation to the next, this plays itself out in various birth defects and other problems like that. So we all go through suffering simply because we live in a fallen world. The second reason that we suffer is because we are associated with people who make bad decisions. We're either associated with a government that makes bad decisions, or we're associated with parents who make bad, sinful decisions, bad decisions, and we suffer the consequences, or we're associated with a spouse who makes bad decisions, and we suffer the consequences, but we suffer because of various associations. Point number three, we suffer because we make, we personally make bad decisions, and this is the law of volitional responsibility. Whatsoever a man reaps, this he will. Oh, whatsoever a man sows, this he will also reap. We mean we make bad decisions. We are going to suffer the consequences of those bad decisions. Fourth reason that we suffer is that God allows suffering to come into our lives to give us the opportunity to utilize. Uh, Bible doctrine to apply it in our lives so that we can grow and advance to spiritual maturity. This is found in James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. Point number five, we suffer and we are, we suffer because of divine discipline. Various stages of divine discipline, we find this in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, when Paul is uh, confronting the Corinthian believers with their uh, misuse of the Lord's table, he says, For this reason many are weak and sick among you, and many sleep, many die. There is divine discipline. And then point number six, we need to recognize 
that a lack of suffering or a lack of sickness is not an indication of spirituality or salvation. So just because you don't have uh, any suffering right now doesn't mean you're more spiritual or it's not nece- does not necessarily mean that you are saved. So their question presupposes the idea that, that, that the only source of suffering, the only reason people suffer is because they make a bad decision or their parents make a bad decision. And yet, the Scriptures show that there are many other reasons for suffering, one of which is that we just live in a fallen world. Point number, uh, verse number 3, Jesus answers them and He says, it was, not, it was neither that this man sinned, nor his parents. He completely rejects their solution. And he gives another alternative. It was in order that the works of God might be displayed in him. God has a plan from eternity past for this man, and he is going to be used in or as, a, as a teaching aid in order to illustrate the principle that I am the light of the world. And his, though his name is not known, he will be read about throughout all the ages. And that brings us to a study of the doctrine of healing. We have to understand what the Scriptures teach about healing and why Jesus healed. Because too many people get the idea that because God can heal, He ought to heal. And we take a number of passages in Scripture to somehow support our view that God ought to heal, and if I pray for it, it ought to happen. And we look at passages like James 5, which is poorly interpreted and poorly translated in places, and we then become very disappointed that God doesn't heal us when we pray for it. Roman numeral 1, Doctrine of Healing. During the first advent, healing was used to verify and establish that the Messiah had come to Israel. That was the purpose for Jesus' healings is to demonstrate that the Messiah was there. It was His calling card. It was His credentials. Healing was not used merely to alleviate suffering. to present the messianic credentials of Jesus Christ. Isaiah 42.7 prophesied that when the Messiah came, He would open blind eyes, He would bring out prisoners from the dungeon and those who dwell in darkness from the prison. Isaiah 29.18 And on that day the deaf shall hear words of a book, and out of their gloom and darkness the eyes of the blind shall see. Isaiah 35.5 then the eyes of the blind will be opened and the ears of the deaf will be unstopped. The interesting thing about this miracle with giving sight to the blind is that Moses never did this. Elijah never did this. Elisha never did this. John the Baptist never did this. No one other than the Lord Jesus Christ gave sight to the blind because He alone is the light of the world. He alone can bring light into darkness. In the life of Christ, healings were never performed merely for their physical benefit. For example, in Matthew 8.17, in Matthew 8.17, His miracles there foreshadowed 
the messianic fulfillment of Isaiah 53. In Matthew 9, 6, Jesus healed in order to demonstrate that He had the authority to forgive sins. In Matthew 11, 2-19, Jesus healed in order to confirm His identity to John the Baptist when John the Baptist was in prison. In Matthew 12, 15-21, Jesus healed to foreshadow the fulfillment of Isaiah 42, 1-4. Matthew 12 foreshadowed the fulfillment of Isaiah 42. John 9, the passage we're studying, Jesus healed in order to demonstrate that He was the light of the world. In John 11:4, He will heal to demonstrate the glory of God. In John 20, 30, and 31, we see that all of these healings were signs that gave evidence that Jesus was the Messiah. So the healings were not just to alleviate suffering, but they were designed to demonstrate that Jesus was who He claimed to be. Furthermore, Jesus' miracles were not performed at random or indiscriminately. Jesus did not heal just anybody who came along. When He went to the pool of Bethesda, He ignored perhaps several hundred people who needed healing and only healed one person. He did not heal on demand. Matthew 12, 38-40, just because someone came to ask Him to heal did not mean He would. He healed in order to fulfill the plan of God. Furthermore, when Jesus healed, the response was either immediate or within minutes. There are a couple of instances when He, for example, He he spit and He applied salve to the eyes of a man and sight came back and then He did it, touched him again, and then it was complete. But it just took minutes, seconds. It's not days or weeks. It's not something gradual. Healing was immediate or within minutes. And there were an abundance of healings. Matthew 5.31 says the multitudes came and He healed them. He healed by various means. He healed by touch. In Matthew 8.15, He healed by command. In John 5.8-9, He healed when someone just touched His cloak. In Matthew 9.20-22, He healed by, by spitting, by using spittle in Mark 8.22-26, and then in John 9 by mixing spittle with clay. And then last, in terms of this first point, not all who were healed either expressed faith or were saved. Now, that's an important point because the way that many people represent healing today is that it was either to save people or it was to get them saved and or their expression of faith. But there were those, for example, a parent who came, the, the centurion who came and said, Jesus, my son is sick. He's about to die. Would you heal him? The son knows nothing about it. The son has no faith. The son's not a believer. And yet the son is healed. There are other cases where there are those who are healed. For example, Jairus' daughter is raised from the dead. When you're dead, you can't believe. Lazarus was called forth from the, de- from the dead. When you're dead, you can't believe. There's no faith on his part, no faith on Jairus' daughter's part. So faith was not necessarily present in everyone who was healed. It's not present in the blind man here in chapter 9. He is not showing faith to Jesus, and he does not become a believer right away. It takes a little while before he 
realizes who healed him. Back in John 5, I took the same thing. That man was not a believer for some time. So healing is not based on necessarily based on faith or on salvation. Now there is another insidious thing that is taught today that people get confused about based on a misinterpretation of Isaiah 53, and that is the idea that there is healing in the atonement. Now this is based on the English translation in Isaiah 54.3, which reads, Surely our griefs He Himself bore, and our sorrows He carried. Yet we, est- we ourselves esteemed Him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon Him, and by His scourging we are healed. Now, the terms griefs, sorrows, and healing are general terms. They can be used to physical problems. They can be used to spiritual problems. The context tells us what we're talking about here. And the context uses the precise words. In the Hebrew, it's in, it's in um, synonymous parallelism. So we see the, um, the, from one line mirrors the next line. He was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities, tells us that he's talking about spiritual problems here. Furthermore, the phrases to bear, nasa in the Hebrew, which means to lift up, and our sorrows he carried, sabal, um, are used again in Isaiah 53, 11, and 12. And there it says, he will bear their iniquities, and he himself bore the sin of many. So when it talks about our griefs he bore, he car- it's talking about sin. It's talking about the problem of sin. Isaiah 53 is not talking about sickness. It's talking about sin. It's not ta- talking about uh, disease. It's talking about the constitutional problem that is the result of our transgression and our iniquity. If Jesus died to make us healthy, then... After we are saved and become sick, that would mean we had lost our salvation. That's the implication. Now, certainly sin and disease is in the world as a consequence. I mean, illness, sickness, and disease is in the world as a consequence of sin. But Jesus did not die to give us health. Jesus died to pay the penalty for sin. He who knew no sin was made sin for us. The Scripture says that Christ died for our sins. 1 Corinthians 15, 1-3 and Ephesians 1, 7. That He was made sin in 2 Corinthians 5, 21. That He forgave us our sins. 1 John 1, 7, 1 John 1, 9, 1 John 2, 12. So the issue is sin. The issue is not sickness. Now, Jesus then works a miracle. He reminds them of the principle in verse 5, While I am in the world... I am the light of the world. And then when he had said this, he spat on the ground. He leans over, he spits down. If this is right outside the temple, people have been walking in and out all day long. The dirt and the dust off their feet, which is the dirty and dustiest part of that dirt, is there on the steps of the temple. And he spits there, gathers this up, makes a little mud pie, and puts the clay on the eyes of the man. Now, why does he do this? There is no healing in his fiddle. There is no healing power to the clay. What's going on here? Think about what happens in salvation. There is the blindness of the sin. 
You are totally depraved. Every part of your, sin, of your soul is affected by sin. You are blind to the truth. You cannot see the truth. The truth of God is not... Uh, scripture says the natural man, the soulish man, the word there in 1 Corinthians 2.12 is sukikos, meaning soulish, just has a body, soul. No human spirit. It's the human spirit that allows us to understand spiritual truth. So, since we don't have a human spirit, God the Holy Spirit substitutes and makes the gospel understandable. When we witness to somebody, or somebody witnessed to us, God the Holy Spirit substituted for our human spirit and made the gospel understandable. That is analogous to Jesus doing the work of the clay. This is the work of God, the Godward side of what takes place at salvation. Jesus doesn't just touch His eyes so that He can see. He's illustrating what's going on at salvation. That there is revelation given, but there must be a response of positive volition. So He demonstrates His part by putting the clay on the man's eyes. But then the man has to do something on his part, something that anyone could do. He says... Go wash in the pool of Siloam. Now, the pool of Siloam, this refers to the tunnels that were built by Hezekiah during the siege of the Assyrians under Sennacherib. This is not near the temple. This is on the other side of town. Think about it. This is a blind man. Go wash in the pool of Siloam. You've got to go down the temple steps. You've got to go through the crowds. You've got to go down the streets, around the corners, through the crowds at the market down to the entranceway to the pool of Siloam, down the stairs into Hezekiah's tunnel, and down the tunnel to the well. And you're blind. And the guy takes off. Anybody can wash. It's not a matter of your IQ, your cultural background. Anybody can wash. Some people need to. He went down and he washed his eyes. The word nipto, which indicates just a partial washing. He washes his eyes and he came back seeing. So here we see the response. Jesus is the light of the world. He's going to provide the basis, the healing. The man is not healed because he washed. He's healed because Jesus healed him. But he had to respond. There is a response of negative or positive volition at gospel hearing. Are you positive or are you negative? Have you accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior or have you rejected Him? Now, the man is still not a believer, but he has been healed. So this shows, once again, that the purpose for healing was not an evangelistic tool. The healing, so-called healing and deliverance ministries today argue that this is how you witness to people. But there were people in the Bible that saw lots of miracles, never responded. Signs and wonders are not a tool for witnessing. They were a tool to give credentials. Now when the man comes back, the neighbors therefore, and those who previously saw him as a beggar were saying, isn't this the one who used to sit and beg? So everybody in Jerusalem knows what's going on. This isn't a miracle done in in secret. Others are saying, some were asking, is this him? Others are saying, yes, it is. And others are saying, no, it's not. So an argument tells you, that can't be him, because now he can see, so he looks different. His face is going to look different. 
He's going to have an expression in his eyes now that was never there before. His countenance has changed. This guy's happy now. He's excited and he's running and nobody's ever seen him like this. So they're not sure it's the same one. And the, and the man comes up and they say, how are your eyes open? And he gives his testimony. The man who's called Jesus made clay and anointed my eyes and told me to go wash at Siloam. And I went away and washed and I received sight. And now the crowd says, where is it? Jesus has departed. I don't know. And so they bring him to the Pharisees because Jesus did this on a Sabbath. So the confrontation is going to be turned up once again. And we will come back next time and see the blindness of the Pharisees as they deal with the man who can now see with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank You for this great opportunity we've had to look at Your Word and see that it is in Your light that we see light. The Scripture says that Thy Word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. It is what illuminates every area of our thinking. And it is Your light that tells us how we can have an eternal relationship with You. That all we have to do is believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and we shall be saved. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning who is unsure of their eternal destiny, that they would take the opportunity to make that certain right now. All they need to do is, by forming words and thought alone, say, Father, I believe Jesus died on the cross for my sins. If you believe Jesus Christ alone is your Savior, then you have eternal life and you're a new creature in Christ, and you can never ever lose that precious salvation. Father, we pray that you would help us remember the things that we have learned today and challenge us with these truths. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.